We are continuing our series of 1 Corinthians with chapter, sorry, <coughs> chapter 11. Um, last week, we went through chapter 9, and the previous week, we went through chapters 8 and 10. So let's do a little bit of a review, okay? So chapters 8 and 10, the central point was this. Through Jesus' death and resurrection, Jesus is Lord, King, and of course, God, right? He's God of this entire world. So what does that mean? We keep on saying it every Sunday, we sing it, but what does it really mean? It means that he requires our worship. And so the central point in that week was the definition of worship. What does worship mean? Is it just singing? Is it just praying? Is it just reading the Bible? Is it just gathering together in this place? No. Worship also involves loyalty, submission, obedience, and allegiance every day. It's a daily thing. Christianity is not just a one-moment thing once a week. Christianity actually is a pattern of life. It's who we are. It's an existence. Okay, onward. Chapter 9. What's the central point for chapter 9? Chapter 9 was this. Obeying Jesus, Paul is actually giving us a warning then in chapter 9. Obeying Jesus may actually disqualify us or lose out from things that we need to survive. Example, career, job, financial stability, shelter, heck, even a spouse. Obeying Jesus is tough. Going against the grain in this world will give us slivers. We'll feel lost. We'll feel beaten down. Well, that's what it means to go against the grain of anything. But the key point in what Paul was saying is that you do not want to be, it's, you don't want to be disqualified from the ultimate prize. Even though you are disqualified here, disqualified from shelter, disqualified from your job, disqualified from a possible spouse, Paul says the ultimate prize in the end, the glorious body that awaits you, the eternal life, the relationship that you have with God that's coming up, you do not want to be disqualified in that. Paul says at the last part in chapter 10, it's a race, a race to run, a race to run and it's worth, and the prize is worth it. Now, on to chapter 11. Chapter 11, we're going to have a video clip. So we're gonna show. Hmm. <laughs> 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 
Um, interesting about our Christian life, isn't it? Uh, you know that we're supposed to be the light of the world? You've heard that phrase before, light of the world. But ever wonder about uh, like, uh, how we're supposed to do it? You know, like uh, there's times when we've we're said, okay, there's culture, right? We have to, well, we can't avoid it because if we want to avoid it, you have to blast into space or li live in a missile silo, right? You know, you can't avoid it, so you have to engage with it. Live in the culture. But then Christians are also called to, oh, but you don't, can't let culture influence you, right? So there's culture in front of you, but you can't let culture influence you. But then we are called to be the light of the world, so we're kind of like, do we have to live against the culture? You follow? So, okay, wait a minute. We can't leave the planet, so we have to live in the culture. We can't let the culture influence us, but then also we have to go against culture. <laughs> you follow? There's this interesting dynamic that we, and the struggle, the constant struggle that we have as a, as a Christian. And here I, I was showing this episode is because you notice that they're kind of out of place and they're trying to blend in with culture, right? But they're out of place because, you know, they really don't know. And so to the, this morning, it's all about, okay, we are called and as Christians we have freedom in Christ. But what does freedom really mean? in light of trying to be in the culture, engage with culture, but not influenced by the culture, and then also we have to go against culture. What does that mean when we have freedom in Christ? And that's where we're headed today. So if you have your Bibles with me, turn to chapter, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12. All right, chapter 6, verse 12. We're just going to touch a little bit there first. Freedom, uh, freedom let's define freedom. Webster's uh, defines freedom as the power or right to act, speak, or think as one wants without hindrance or restraint. Now in Canada, we have some examples of this type of freedom. Freedom of speech, freedom of beliefs and religion, freedom to worship, freedom to live out a life we want. However, as Paul mentioned in earlier chapters, freedom is like a right that needs to be governed by some moral restraint, right? And that's why I told you to go back to chapter 6. No, I did not forget that we're in chapter 11. We're just going to touch a little bit in chapter 6. Now remember this phrase in chapter 6, verse 12. It's a very important one. Paul says, I have the right to do anything you say, meaning the Corinthians say that I have freedom in Christ, so I have right to do anything. But not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. That's what Paul says. When we went over chapter 6, in this phrase, Paul was addressing the moral restraints of sexual freedom. We can't do anything with our bodies for our sexual pleasure because why? Jesus owns our bodies. And he does not want co-ownership. Because when we have sex with other people, we are actually allowing co-ownership. Right? So he goes, no, you cannot do that because there's a certain moral restraint. Even though the law, the legal law, does not forbid you from having sexual pleasure, we do have moral restraints in a Christian life. All right. In chapter 10 now, we, all, we learn that we cannot participate in any activity that may lead our new believing friends back to their old ways. So he's saying that, remember this uh, whole thing about not letting your brother stumble, right? Uh, don't eat like a food that may uh, cause other bro brothers stumble. Well, it's because eating back then was more about eating part of worship. Eating back then was like us singing today in worship service. 
eating was a form of worship, like singing today. All right? And so he says that, well, whatever you're doing, right, don't let, like, whatever you're worshiping, right, whatever activity you're worshiping, please uh, like, keep it, like, even though you have that freedom, don't exercise it if it's going to cause another person to stumble, a recent convert. And I said, well, it's kind of like something similar to today. Worship, remember what worship was. Worship is not necessarily here in this building, right? Worship could mean, like, uh, let's say Henry and I, uh, or Henry Carmen and uh, Rosanna and I, we go for a dinner with our friends, right? And then we're in this, uh, this uh, party together at a table of 10, and we start talking. What are the most common conversations that usually happen at the table? Jesus. <laughs> we hope, but it's usually money, housing, mortgage, taxes, whatever. Children, right, especially if you're amongst a family too, right? Children, guess what folks, that's worship. Because whatever, what is worship then? Worship is allegiance, loyalty, submission. What are we, right, and usually whatever we talk about the most is what we're submitting our time, our efforts, our all to. If it's money, then it is money that we're worshiping. If it is uh, children, then children is who we're worshiping follow so but then Paul says yes right keep going you like you as Christians you know that you know you're standing firm you know you're strong you know that you cannot fall for this uh, type of temptation to to worship those idols and then he said it in tongue-in-cheek because chances are we do we are tempted and we tend to fall to worship those things but then let's say that you're at this table and then suddenly a friend comes up and says I am a new believer what are we supposed to do then change channels, right? And that week, last week, I challenged all of us that whenever we, like, we are at a dinner table, whenever we're at uh, conversing with our friends and we realize that there are new believers in our midst, guess what? She is trying her darnest to fight against those idols right now. She wants to depend on Jesus. She is a recent baptizee. She got baptized that, that one Sunday. You knew that, I knew that. So should we continue to talk about that money is, uh, is our burden. Children is it's, uh, something that we're going to talk about all the time. Housing, no. We try our very best to change channels and provide hope in the conversation. That we tell that this uh, young lady or this young man who has uh, recently come to Jesus to say, we're not worried about that today. We're not worried because we're in Jesus. You're in Jesus now. You don't have to worry about that either. We'll take our conversations later. It takes a lot of swallowing our pride type of thing. It takes some effort too, doesn't it? Because naturally, whatever comes out is whatever is in our hearts. And that's why the, a Christian life, engaging with culture, in the culture, against the culture, it is tough to put our conversations into check and just evaluate before we speak. And it could only be done as we continue to pray for the Holy Spirit to move us, fill us, and continue to purge us as we become more like Christ-like. This can only be done through Jesus, amen? All right, so there are, so all these freedoms, Paul says, you are free to have these conversations. You are free to, you know, uh, talk about these things. So what, but then there's, but then of course there's your new believers, of course there is Jesus as our Lord. So what are these two constraints then that we have covered? One, love our Lord, our God. Second, Take a wild guess what the second one is. 
love your neighbor. If this uh, person is coming up as a new believer, you, and if you really, really love them, we will not talk about or complain about money, right? If you really, really love Jesus, would you be sleeping around? No. Right? So these two constraints have been continually, continually being introduced in chapters 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. Right? Love God, love your neighbor. Those are the moral constraints of our freedoms. Now, let's go on to chapter 11. Turn with me to chapter 11, verse 2. Paul begins by praising the Corinthians for believing what, that they are free in Christ because that's what he taught them. Free. You have freedom in Christ. But what does that mean, church? Do you know? What does it mean to have freedom in Christ? Like, how does it play itself out? Because the Corinthians took it to the next level. They, they actually misinterpreted it. But before, they, before Paul attacks them on that, Paul actually congratulates, commends them for remembering it. So what does he say? I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the traditions just as I pass them on to you. Traditions. Traditions meaning teaching. Whatever I taught, like whatever I taught Cecilia, right? Uh, and I pass on to her. Through that passing on, that content is called tradition, right? What you're doing here at church. How do you know that you have to show up at 11? Some of you. I'm just, <clears throat> come on, man, show up at 11, <laughs> right? And then, like, how many of you know that you have to show up at 11? How many of you know that we have to sing three songs or four songs, you know, in the beginning? How many of you know that I have to pray, come up and pray after the fourth song? Tradition passed on to us, right? How many of you know that you have to pray before your meal and pray after your meal or pray before you go to bed and in the morning? Traditions passed on to us. So Paul He's teaching the Corinthians how to be Christian, a Christian lifestyle. And one of the main uh, uh, truths in the gospel is you, are, you have freedom in Christ, a tradition that was passed on to the Corinthians. Yet they weren't quite sure what he meant. It got lost in translation, so to speak. So let's go on. What did they get wrong? 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 5. If you have your Bibles, turn to, go to verse 5. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it is a disgrace, if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her hair head shaved, then she should cover her head. Does not the very nature, nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for long hair is given to her as a covering. This is an interesting passage, right? A little weird. But here's what I want you to highlight. If you are able to highlight, highlight these. First of all, highlight in verse 6, but if it is a disgrace. Highlight. Then in verse 14, does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him? Highlight that. Okay? We move on. See, in the Corinthian church, the women in the church felt they had the freedom to let their hair down and not conform to a particular social norm. How do we know that? Because Paul says, if it is a disgrace. You notice what he said? It means that other people are seeing it outside, from outside the church, looking at them, saying it is a disgrace. You follow? 
So that's why I told you to highlight that. So the Corinthians uh, women in the Corinthian church are letting their hair down against a social norm. Now, is that what a Christian is supposed to do? Go against culture? You, you see, you're getting where I'm talking about? All right, is this the type of freedom that we're supposed to exercise to be the light of the world? Is to be viewed as a disgrace? See, okay, let's go to chapter, uh, verse 6, 14 and 14. But if it is a disgrace to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him? So really, it's the outside world that sees these actions inside the church as a disgrace. Question for you, have we seen this before? Yes. Chapter 5. Remember, there was this dude who slept with his father's new wife. And what did Paul say? Verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? They were, he was doing something illegal that the, so, the society around the church is saying, what are you guys doing allowing this to happen? He's doing something blatantly illegal. And now, this, uh, now the people around this church are seeing it as a disgrace. Okay, so we've seen this before. And so the Corinthian church, unfortunately, I don't know, maybe, the, the, maybe that's typical human behavior that we tend to forget, right? It is a pretty long ways, right, from chapter five to chapter 11. So as you go along, you kind of forget the first principle that he mentioned. So you, maybe they forget, but this is the type of the freedom that the Corinthians thought that they had, that they could finally do whatever they want that benefits them. Chapters 5, chapter 6, 7, 8, and 10 were all about Corinthians thinking they can do anything they want because these freedoms benefited them. And now they're doing it again. And this time, they're using their freedoms to muddy societal norms. And they're making the, the society around them view them as a disgrace. Now, now, I know this is kind of tough. Now, in that time and culture, because we don't live in it, Paul tells us that normally women's hair are long, and they're bundled up and covered, just like the picture that we have that I showed you before this slide. They were normal. That was what's normal behavior, right? And for men, they were supposed to be uncovered, and they're supposed to be you know, clean cut, not a man bun, <laughs> you know, that type of thing. It's clean cut. So therefore, like, and then men are supposed to have, actually not have their head covered. Follow? That was the social norm. So what's going on inside the church then? The Corinthians are doing what is disgraceful, just like chapter 5. They're going against what society, societal norms are. That women are supposed to have their head covered, and the men are supposed to have their head uncovered with, and clean cut, not long. And so that's what Paul meant when he said that their actions dishonors their head. You follow? In the very, chapter um, verse 4 to 5 and verse 14, it says, every man who prays or prophesies with his head uncovered, sorry, dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. Head being the person, all right? There's shame. You're shaming yourself. You're, you're, you're making yourself a disgrace. And what happens when somebody acts disgracefully? Okay, if I was acting disgracefully, if I was like, I don't know, swearing my head off, <laughs> you know, right now, um, eating while I'm talking, 
um, wearing a sweat or something, all sweats here, up here. Would you give me any respect? No. Angel just shook his her head right away. No, right? You wouldn't, right? So Paul is saying, by your disgraceful actions, the people are not giving you any respect and therefore compromising the very gospel you're trying to proclaim. Follow? All right. Let me give you an example then. Let's say our church. I just gonna said it, right? Like we, uh, let's just say every second word is an F-bomb, even when we sing. I know, it's kind of hard, but you know, like just picture it. Every second word is an F-bomb. Let's say our church slaps on a Jesus fish on the back of our car, and then we park parallel, like perpendicularly, uh, and downstairs. And we just park at everywhere we want, and then uh, we, you know, park in the handicap zones, uh, like even though we don't have handicap signs, or even worse, we photocopy handicap signs to, to you know, put them on there. I've seen it, I've seen it, all right? Like, let's say we did that. Let's say we just trash the place every Sunday, right? And let's say, uh, you know, we dress horribly, or, you know, smoke, uh, smoke weed in the building. Would newcomers come in droves to this church? No, we're viewed as a disgrace. And when they, we do that, we, we do not have the respect of the people around us. How on earth are we going to be a light to the city of Richmond if our actions are already a disgrace? You follow? And this is what Paul is saying. Your actions, your very actions are compromising the gospel. You're compromising the gospel, and you're compromising the proclamation of the gospel in your city, the city of Corinth. See, folks, when we declare ourselves as Christians, all eyes are on us. All eyes are on us. You notice? Every time a politician that claims that he's a Christian, he or she is a Christian, and then suddenly an action happens, the news just goes haywire. Every time a pastor commits something, and it's on the news, what happens? It goes like haywire, viral, insane. Because the world still think, and thankfully, and you know, maybe it's a blessing and also a burden, but thankfully the world still thinks that when you're a Christian, you have a higher calling. You see that? The world sees that. The world knows that. And so if our behavior does not correspond to the very thing that we believe, people will know. A quick Google and they'll just search Christian values and it's a match with your, what, how we're living and they'll know, right? When we say we're Christian, they instantly say, well, you're a hypocrite. And you go, oh yeah, but, but you know why I say you're a hypocrite? It's because you, you're swear to these beliefs and you're not living them. That's how they know because you're called to a higher calling. That's what they say. Even though they don't believe in the God, but once we swear to a Christian, Christianity for some odd reason, the world always says, it puts us right against the standards that we swear by. You follow? It's, it's kind of, it's, it's scary. That's why, it's, it's some, the, that's why um, one time I told, I can't remember who it was, I don't want to put a Jesus fish on there on my car because chances are if I cut off somebody, <laughs> right, I'm toast, <laughs> right? Like, I just don't want, like, I know that I would be a bad testimony, especially when I'm driving. So I never want to put that Jesus fish on my car. All right, let's move on. Okay. So if you recall, okay, so let's move on. Verse 7 to 12. A man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was a man created for woman, but woman for man. It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head. Because of the angels, nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, 
Nor is a man independent of woman, for as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman, but everything comes from God. Wow. All right. <laughs> Not bad for a 41-year-old. Okay. So what is, uh, we're going into this question then. Okay, this freedom then. Why do the Corinthians want this, to exercise this type of freedom that is disgraceful? Why do they want to do that then? Why do they want to practice it in their church and, and do this type of stuff? What benefit are they looking for? Well, if you recall our time in, with 1 Timothy, women, it's kind of hard to grasp for today, but women were men's hot commodities. They were treated like, by men like men treat their cars. Right? The wealthier the woman looked, the more intelligent the woman sounded, the more flashier she is, it's actually for the benefit of the man, of her husband. Because the husband would gain that accolade, that status, the one-upmanship of everybody else. So let me contemporize then. Paul says, if you show off your woman, he says, you're showing off whose glory? Man's glory. You see that on the passage? When, you, when a woman is, a, is shown off, whose glory is it shown? Man's glory. So quick question. Whose glory in the worship service, in church, whose glory is supposed to be revealed? Not man's, but God's glory. So what does Paul say? Cover your glory. Don't reveal, don't show off your glory. Show God's glory. You follow? It's, and so let me contemporize this. It's not, don't show off your Mercedes, your Rolexes. Don't go, here, look at me. I got my grills. Check out my grills. I got bling, right? That's my fatal attempt, all right? So like, don't show those things off. But even more of a Chinese context, in my, especially when I, in my Chinese upbringing, don't show off your child's piano skills, okay? We know she practiced two to three hours, right? But don't just have her play something that's totally irrelevant in our church just to show off her piano skills. You, you follow? This is not really for her benefit. Whose benefit is it? Whose glory are we trying to show there? The parents, right? You, got, you guys follow? So men are actually using their women to reveal their glory. And so Paul says, don't. Men try to use politicians, you know, do some political meandering. So let's say Henry and I were competing for an elder's job, which is never happens in today's society. But let's say we were competing as a men's job. Guess what we'll be doing with uh, Roseanne and Carmen? Showing them off. We're going to dress them up, prim them up, doll them up, and then say, look. Right? And then the, our wives would do what? Would try to cut each other off. So when Henry's speaking, Rosanna would be going, I question you. Right? You, you, I don't think you're right. I think my husband should actually is, uh, is right. I think he's smarter than you. He, you should sit down, Henry. Let my husband talk. Right? And then uh, Carmen goes, you shut up. You sit down. Right? I, wanna, I want my husband to talk. That's what's happening at the Corinthian church. And that's what's happening in this chapter. Okay, folks? All right? That's what's happening here. Right? Remember what Paul says, tell your women to go home and question them there. Right? Don't use them as cheerleaders here. We don't want to create division in this church. Right? How many times have we seen this already with the Corinthian church? That they want to one-up each other, to be status symbols, and to go above each other and add more resume material into their resume to get ahead. A lot. So use that trajectory and read it in this passage. Okay? All right, 
I literally have to apologize to Paddock because I just completely went off topic. But that's how 1 Corinthians in this chapter is all about. We have women using women to one-up each other. Okay? Remember when these letters, these letters were not written for both men and women. These letters were written for men. Okay? Because they were the ones who were mainly literate. Okay. So let's summarize. Whew, let's summarize. What the Corinthians were doing was exercising their freedoms while compromising the work of the gospel. They were proud of themselves of being spiritually superior now that they are Christians because, hey, we have freedom, right? We have freedom in Christ. I can do anything. However, really, society saw them as a disgrace as they were practicing these freedoms. Not and they were not taken seriously. They were dishonored in society. And they saw them as just a bunch of cowboys. You know, just a bunch of cowboys. They just do whatever they want, religious nuts. So they used their freedoms for their own benefit, and therefore they did not exercise any constraint of loving God and giving him the glory, right? Instead, they gave themselves the glory. They would rather exercise their freedoms to show off their own glory. So really the question is, what is this freedom of Christ then, if it's not this? What is the freedom of Christ? What do we have? Well, what is the freedom of Christ that we are supposed to purvey in this culture, yet not be overcome by this culture and not, and not to go against culture like this, right? What are we supposed to do? What is this freedom that we have? Well, let's move on to verse 19. Let's read it together. No doubt, I'll read it, you follow. No doubt there have, been, there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So then, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink, or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What it, shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this manner. Okay, remember karma in chapter 2? I'm always going to revisit our previous chapters here. Remember karma? About like you reap what you sow, right? How do they, how do they see the poor people, the poor among them? Like let's say you were the middle upper class, you're at a dinner table. Remember, worship services back then were around a dinner table, okay? How do you see the poor people? What would you say if you were a Corinthian? You, get, you got what you deserve, you lazy bum, right? Like look at you, you're poor. You know why you're poor? You don't work. Yeah, I know that you're handicapped and you don't have two legs, but you're, you're, you know, you're poor. You got what you deserve, right? Karma, right? So what happened here? Paul is saying that the poor don't, didn't get a chance of eating with the middle to upper class. Worship was a dinner table, and they left the poor out. They got the leftovers. The rich and the wealthy got first dibs. They got drunk. They ate so much that they were beyond full, Paul says. Yet the fact is, the poor among them in this church were marginalized. They were kicked out. They were just outside looking in. Think about that. You're having your dinner, okay? You're worshiping God. You're doing this praying and breaking the bread of the Lord's Supper. And then, and then you're telling other people, go away, go away, go away, go away, right? Because you're poor. Like, you're not part of our crowd. You're not in our small group. So go away. We have to approve you first before you get in. But chances are you're not approved because you're poor. Right? Like, and you're not with us. You guys follow? Right? So basically, what does it mean by taking the... What, so what does it mean by when Paul says you're taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner? 
It's not because like the person's not baptized. It's because I was poor, right? You're doing this discrimination against people. Oh, you're not Chinese, so don't go, don't come to the communion table. Oh, you're, you're poor, don't come to the communion Oh, you're not baptized, don't come to the communion table. Oh, there's all these standards these people have to fulfill, all these fences that we have put up. Jesus is saying, or what Paul is saying, you're taking this in an unworthy manner. This table is supposed to be offered for everyone. The grace of God is supposed to be offered for everyone. And what are you doing? You're keeping the poor out. The very people that Jesus was supposed to reach to, out. That's what he meant by the unworthy manner. See, think about this. You're at a dinner table in current, current church, on this dinner table. Everybody's, the man has his wife full of bling, okay? Full of bling beside him. Everybody's bickering because everybody thinks that they have the right theology, right? That everybody thinks that, no, I got the right way. I know what Paul meant. No, yeah, I know Paul. No, I follow Jesus. You know, like, I follow Peter, right? All this bickering. Okay? And then the wives are like yelling at each other. Husbands are yelling at each other, right? All dressed up in bling. Eating and drinking like crazy. The very supper that you're, that you're supposed to have as a Lord's Supper. And then you have all the poor around them just looking in. Not getting a single bite. Not having any drink, getting a single bite, and just looking in. Paul says that is taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. And he even believed so firmly about this that he even correlated that illness and death that's currently occurring right now is due to that. That the reason why you're sick, the reason why there are people dying in your church right now is because you're doing that. You're taking the table in an unworthy manner. Follow? Okay. So, lastly, let's go to verse 23. For I received from the Lord that I also passed on to you. Remember this verse? We say it all the time. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. You in plural. Okay, this was a plural you for everyone. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. What is that covenant? For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, so that whoever believes in him shall have eternal life and never perish. That's the covenant. Right? The love of the world. So this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. What does freedom in Christ mean then? Freedom in Christ means that we are not afraid to invite anyone onto the Lord's table. Freedom in Christ means that we are free now to serve anyone out there, regardless how, how bad they smell, regardless how, what their status is, regardless of their income, regardless of their social class, regardless of their ethnic class, regardless of their gender, whatever the gender they want. Freedom in Christ means we don't have to fear them. Freedom in Christ means that we could invite everyone. Freedom in Christ to do good. Freedom in Christ to love. We don't have to fear about anything. That's what he meant by freedom in Christ. Not freedom to do whatever we want, not freedom to like, say whatever we want on the pulpit, not freedom to bash each other, not freedom to have, like, live out a sexual whatever infidelity. No, freedom in Christ means to love. And that is freedom in Christ. Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. There is neither Jew nor gentle, neither slave or free, nor there is male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. In Christ, we have the freedom to love everyone. 
when somebody comes into our, uh, our church, a congregation, and I'm sure there will be after community day too, checking us out, we are free to talk to them with no fear. For God will keep us safe. For, God, for in Christ, we have freedom. Okay. I still remember a story. I'll tell you a story just to close. In the First Baptist Church, when Pastor Daryl Johnson was uh, pastoring there and was preaching, he shared a story about one communion Sunday. It was like the first Sunday of the month, and it was a communion Sunday. And you know where First Baptist is located. It's in downtown, right? And so what, do you, what kind of wildlife do you get in downtown, right? So there was one time as a, uh, a street worker. She came in. And obviously, Daryl says she looked like she had a really bad night with a John. Black eyes, everything, and then dress ripped. You know, people kind of avoided her. And she smelled of alcohol, stuff like that. She sat down. And then, so Daryl goes, you know what? It takes a lot for this person to come to church. Think about it. It means that this is her last card. Her, she's at the end of her rope. It's on communion Sunday. So when she realized that she was a, uh, having communion, so she shared the story later. Uh, that's why he knows. It's like uh, when she sat down, she goes, oh, no, it's communion Sunday. Because she's Catholic, right? I cannot possibly be here. I'm not a member. I didn't get catechized. I didn't get baptized. I'm not a member here. I just showed up, right? I'm not supposed to be here, right? But then she really felt that, no, I got nowhere to go. I got no family. I got nowhere to go. No one loves me. So I'm going to sit here and stay here. Communion started, and then the server came to her. And the server was actually one of the pastors at First Baptist. He went around and says, this is the body of Christ broken for you. This is the blood of Christ, the new covenant in his blood, shed for you, for your salvation. She took it. In tears, she took it. Then when she reflected back as she was sharing the story at First Baptist, she goes, from that day, on that day, I felt I was part of the family a greater family. That day, somebody served me. That day, I felt Jesus serving me, telling me, inviting me to a bigger family, telling me that the grace surpasses, just, surpasses beyond my image, what I've done in the past. I just felt this renewed sense of, and she goes, confusingly, joy, that someone does care. Someone does love me. She felt, not for family in First Baptist, she felt that she would belong in a big God family. You follow? So when she shared that at her baptism at First Baptist, she got baptized. She shared that. Daryl revisited that story in his sermon and says, look, the Lord's table is a symbol of God's grace, open for everyone to participate, to take advantage of. An unworthy manner is to block them from taking it, to prevent people from taking it. Those who are poor in spirit and we block them, that is an unworthy manner of taking the Lord's Supper. Follow? Let us be a church that, we, that because we individually we experience God's immense grace in our lives, that we show grace to others as they come because we have freedom to love them. Amen.